So now we can read the book itself, Colossians chapter one. Would someone volunteer to read for me? All right. So verse one to two. Colossians chapter one, verse one to two. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and the faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, thank you. So one thing I want us to notice off the bat here is that Paul refers to everyone in this church as saints. If I ask you, do you think that you are a saint? Um, what would you say, Terence? Do you think that you are a saint and what makes you a saint? Believe I'm a saint, yeah. I so just be a saint. Yeah. What does it mean to be a saint? Anyone? Um, a believer. Yeah, yeah, like the word saint is stronger than believer, right? Yep. Yeah. So um, a saint is someone who is called out, right? Someone who is separated unto a deity, unto God. And I know that when you look at your life, you might observe a lot of imperfections in your work with God, but your status in heaven is that you are a saint. You are you have been separated. You see, the thing that makes you holy, first of all, is not really what you do or don't do primarily. That is the secondary thing about holiness. The primary thing about holiness is who dwells in you, which is why it's a grievous crime for you to willfully partake in sin because you are already made holy just by the indwelling of the spirit. And it's only when you don't know that fact that you begin to feel that you know, your life doesn't matter <clears throat> and you can spend your life and your body as you want. But friends, we are saints. We are saints. We are not going to be saints. We are saints called out, separated for God himself to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. And I just wanted to point out these two things that appear in Paul's greetings in his letters. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, grace and peace, two things that you need for your journey. Like we always say, the more grace you have, the more God can do through you. It means that the grace on your life can be multiplied. And when we get to the threshold of a new year, like we are now, one of the things that God does deliberately when we press into him is that he multiplies grace on our lives so that we can do more for him. The more grace you have, the more you can do more for God. And the way the scripture puts it, the amount of grace you can have is how much you are ready to receive, how much you are ready to align with. Because it says, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. So you can, you can, you can talk to the Lord that I want the capacity to disciple five people next year or to disciple 500. And that grace will begin to be released into your vessel if you're faithful. So the more grace you have, the more you can do for God, the more God can do through you. And the more peace you have, the less Satan can disturb you. The more grounded you are in the will of God, the more stable your life is. And you see, both of, both of these realities are not utopian. They are not found in the library. They are not found in the latest TV show. They are not found in YouTube. They are found in God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And anything that takes your attention away from these two personalities is inevitably going to rob you of grace and peace. 
Okay. So now, Terence, you can read for us verse 3 to 8. Verse 3, we give thanks to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ, in Christ Jesus of your love, sorry, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the, of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and, and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learned from, what? Oh, we lost Terence. <laughs> okay. As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the spirit. Okay, there's a few things that I want us to pay attention to in this block of scripture that we just read, right? So he says that we give Sorry. thanks. Yeah. My internet dropped. No worries, we just finished reading it. Thank you. So Paul says that we give thanks to God, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ praying always for you. He says, we heard of your faith in Christ and of your love for all the saints. Where did this faith and love come from? He says it came from the hope. Yeah, it came from the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. There is a hope in the gospel that, that stimulated, that triggered the faith and the love of these um, Christians in Colossae. And so, what is hope? How would you define hope? Because if you look at verse, verse um, 5 closely, Paul is saying that the quality of their faith was a product of the quality of their hope. Because they had the right hope, their faith could stand. Because they had the right hope, love could spring out of that faith. Or rather, faith could spring out of that love, depending on how you see it. Um, so how would you define hope? Before we talk about the quality, what makes, what gives this hope is quality. How would you describe hope? Or how would you define it? Okay, hope is expectations, okay? Hope is desire. Okay. Okay. Paul also, Paul gives us some kind of working definition of hope in his letter to the first to First Thessalonians, there are more answers here in the chat. A feeling of trust, a feeling of trust. Okay. Um, let's look at the definition Paul gives in First Thessalonians two, one verse two to three. It says we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love and patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father. So basically we can say that hope is that quality that enables you to endure, right? And the thing that gives hope its, its strength, the thing that gives hope its value is the object of that hope. 
like Stephanie has said, it's a, it's a, it's a desire, it's an expectation. It's an assurance, like Anna said in the chat. Um, but you see, the main thing about hope is that that expectation, that desire, that assurance is what enables you endure. You know, it's almost like when you think about kids um, and when they have an expectation of a Christmas gift from, from you or an older person and a condition is placed on the receipt of that gift, a, con a condition of good behavior. The quality of their hope, how much hope they have in receiving that gift is what will determine um, how much effort they put into enduring good behavior just to receive that gift. I don't know if that example makes sense. But basically, hope is that quality that enables us to endure. It means that if our faith dissipates easily, it's a sign that whatever hope it is that we are holding on to, it's not, it's not the accurate hope of the, of the gospel. And this is important because we live in a day where different versions of the gospel is being like it's preached everywhere. A lot of things is presented as our hope in Christ. You know, someone can convince you that the reason God saved you was so that he can put power on your life so that when you stand, 70 people fall down. And when that is your hope, that hope does not sustain the quality, the value to enable you to endure. What happens when you don't receive um, that false hope that has been planted in your life? And in some places, someone, people can convince you that God is some kind of money doubler. And that becomes the hope for your labors, the hope for your investments in the kingdom, that if I put 1,000 CDs, for example, it will become 2,000 by the end of the year. And when it doesn't become 2,000, what happens to your faith? If your faith dissipates, it's a sign that the hope upon which your faith was based was not the right hope in the first place. And look at what Paul says here. He says that this hope is laid up for you in heaven. This hope, this hope is not something that you can trace to anything physical, but is laid up for you in heaven. I think the correct translation of this is in the heavens. So what it means is that it's laid up for you in the spirit, actually. Because you might look at this and say, okay, I have a hope in heaven, so I'm waiting to go to heaven to see that hope materialize, right? But the word here is in the heavens, which you can also say is in the spirit. The, the hope that God has for you is in the spirit. And the reason that distinction is important is that hope can materialize even now on earth. That's what verse 6 says, that the truth has come to you the same way it came to, to all the world, and it is bringing forth much fruit, you know. So the quality of hope you have in your heart can produce much more fruit. This is part of why we, we try to expand our horizons in Christ, to show us that there is much more to press into in Christ, because if I don't have hope that there is something for me to step into in Christ, it's going to affect the quality of the fruits that will emerge from my life. And Paul was commending the ministry of Epaphras, like we mentioned earlier, that Epaphras was, was a classic example of who a minister should be. He was a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And the result of this right hope, having the right hope, is that there's love in your spirit. There's no bitterness. There's no feeling of failure. There's no feeling of, of competition or comparison that look at where I am, look at where my mates are. But because your hope is right, 
he stirs up love in the spirit. Now we need we needed to run past it so that we can go to um, how to realize that hope, how to materialize the reality of that hope. That's what Paul covers in verse nine to verse twelve. Can you return? Sure. For this reason, we sorry. For this reason, we also since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Okay. Thank you. So I'm sure when I was talking about hope, one of the thoughts that probably crossed your mind was, okay, hope is hope has a way of, be, of remaining hope for a very long time, right? It's just hope, you know? We can always have hope till we die. There's still hope. After we die, there is still hope. But what Paul is showing us is that this hope that is in you, there is something that we want to happen to you so that this hope can materialize into things, into, into fruits that you can show forth to your generation. So look at what Paul says. He says, for this reason, since the day we heard of your faith, of your love, of your hope. Now, here's what's going on in this verse, is that Paul has heard that it's very likely, if you listen to historians, that Paul never actually visited this church. He's only writing to them based on the reports of Epaphras. Um, so Paul has heard that these guys are full of hope and faith and love, meaning that they have understood the gospel. They have understood the freedom that is in Christ. They have embraced it. You know, in a lot of Christian circles, um, and especially what you might call Calvinistic Christian circles, this is where the gospel ends in so many ways that I'm saved, so I just need to remain saved until Jesus comes, you know, and just rejoice in that salvation and just enjoy it. And that is correct, but that's not where the gospel stops. Paul meets a group of a church, a group of Christians that are grounded in the gospel, whose hope is alive, and then triggers a season of prayer for them. He says, I do not cease to pray for you. And what is his prayer point? His prayer point is that they will be filled with the knowledge of God's will. You see, you can have hope in your heart, but the thing that completes your hope, that, that gives it material output is the knowledge of the will of God that you're able to capture. And not just the knowledge of the will of God, but capturing it in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, right? If you remember when we did our study of Romans, in Romans chapter 12, after Paul had laid out um, the basis of our salvation, he began to conclude the letter by talking about the weighty matters, the heavy molecules of the kingdom of God. And we said that the first weighty matter of the kingdom of God is the love of God or the mercy of God. There's none of us that was saved by our strength. There's none of us that could have been saved by our own strength. But the mercy of God is why we, why we are standing. And if we're going to be standing tomorrow, it's going to be by the mercy of God. Anyone who misses the principle of the mercy and the love of God in his dealings with men has missed the heaviest matter, the heaviest molecule in the kingdom of God. But, but love is not where it ends in the kingdom of God, right? Because there's something that can 
that can materialize love as it were, that can materialize the hope that is in your heart. And we said the, the second heaviest molecule is the will of God. So for the believer who has come to Christ, who has known what Christ has done for them, the next step that Paul recommends for that believer and prays for that believer is that they will be filled with the knowledge of the will of God. Because this is the thing that will make their hope not to be futile. And of course, the will of God is here. It's an often discussed topic in the body of Christ. And the biggest question that arises around the will of God is, how do we discern the will of God, right? And so that's the question I want to throw towards. What, what tools and frameworks and patterns perhaps have you found on your journey in discerning the will of God? Because friends, it doesn't matter where you are right now in your work with God, especially as we come to the end of the, of the year, Paul's prayer point for you is that you will be filled with the knowledge of the will of God. Right? So what is the will of God and how do, and how do you discern it for your life? Or maybe we don't find the will of God as confusing a topic as it's often made out to be. Or maybe I should rephrase the question. What do you think the will of God is primarily concerned with? Or maybe I should also ask, <laughs> as we go into the next year, do you know the will of God for you for the next year? Or rather, have you discerned the will of God for you for the next year? Terence, do you know what the will of God for your life is? No. Okay. So here are some frameworks which I think we, we mentioned briefly in, when we did Romans chapter 12. Um, again, because this is an important stop on our journey of faith. You have hope in your heart, but the only way this hope will materialize is that you're filled with the knowledge of the will of God. And so one thing I want us to note here is that the will of God is primarily concerned with who you are becoming much more than what you do. That's what the will of God is about because it's primarily about, because in Romans chapter eight, Paul tells us that God is moving everyone to become like his son. And there are many pathways into that destiny, which is why in a sense, God was not too concerned that Joseph was sold into slavery. Even though slavery, as you, as you think about it, is not a very palatable thing. It's not the kind of thing you would call the will of God. But it's, we need to be very clear that slavery cannot be the will of God for someone. But we also need to be very clear that God is not too concerned that you were sold into slavery for a season of your life, as it were. He's not even con too concerned that you ended up in prison. He's more concerned with who you were becoming in Potiphar's house, who you were becoming in prison. Because at the end of the day, he sees the end from the beginning and he sees that your destiny is the palace. And if Potiphar's house and the prison can serve as training grounds for you to arrive at that place, God is committed to allowing you go through those seasons. So like we always say, the will of God is concerned with who you are becoming. And now building up on this first point, is to say that the will of God is more concerned with your now, first of all, before it is concerned with your future. Because the question of the will of God can be so confusing to so many people because we try to think too far into the future or perhaps too far, too far, into, too far back into the past. But if you add that qualifier to that question, what is the will of God for me now? 
why am I here now? It narrows down all the, a lot of the possibilities into a very narrow set of into a very narrow set of possibilities for you to choose from. If God is concerned with what you are becoming rather than what it is exactly that you're doing, right? Then it means that He's more concerned with your obedience today than with anything else. I know that you have a prayer list, you have a five-year goal and plan for yourself, and all of those things are in order. But friends, the will of God is concerned with your obedience now. You see, when God called Abraham, and when God calls anyone that he calls, he doesn't give you a map of your life and tell you that, okay, I'm calling you now at 25, you're going to leave your country, you're going to go to Canada. And then at 28, you meet a Canadian woman. And then at 29, you get married to her. At 30, you have your first kid. At 40, you'll become the CEO of your own company. He doesn't give you that kind of plan. He just tells you, follow me. He just tells you, follow me. And Jesus says that the way that you're going to know his doctrine is if you make a commitment to do his will. There's none of us friends that God shows the full picture. Even when we give testimonies that, oh, God showed me myself in five years, is messy. And even those kind of visions do not give you the exact roadmap for how you're going to get to that picture. The only way to get it is to depend on God. Because like you may have heard it said, God will not give you anything that um, you do not need him to become. You do not need him to operate. There are many reasons why God cannot reveal everything to us at once. One of them is our natural human capacity, our ability to contain what God is saying and to nurture it and to grow it and to stay with it until it materializes. We lack that capacity. Some of us, if God shows us the next five years, our mind will explode. We will not be able to contain the realities. You might become too anxious about it and interfere with that plan. Um, but also another reason why God does not care too much about showing us every detail is that um, we are going to need him along the way anyways. So we might as well walk step by step with him. The one who is going to arrive at their inheritance in Christ is the one who learns to trust God and to obey him. So the will of God is concerned with who you are becoming much more than what it is that you're doing. So in everything that your hand finds to do, do it with all your heart. That's what Paul says in chapter three of this book. Do, is that, do it as unto the Lord. What you're becoming through that process is how God is gauging your life much more than what it is exactly that you're doing. And then we've said that the will of God is concerned with your obedience in the now. What is God asking me to do now? What is God asking me to give up now? Which is why it's very easy to know when God is asking you to fast because it, it's a now question. Is God asking me to fast now in this season of my life? I may not know why he's calling me to do it, but is he asking me to do it? It's a question that can be clearly and easily answered by every Christian. And the third thing, um, Stephanie, how does Jeremiah 29, 11 indicate the will of God for you? What, what about it is the will of God for you? I was typing, but I'm, I think, I don't know if I got the verse right, but the one that says, I know the thoughts I have for you, you know, thoughts of good and not of evil. I feel like his thoughts are his will for us as well. And yeah. then the part that also says, um, um, all things work together for good for them that, you know, mm -hmm. I think that also talks about his will for us because, you know, we love him and, um, 
one. There's another one in Romans that says, in all these things, we are more than, I, I don't know what I'm saying anymore, but I feel like there's so many verses in the New Testament that, you know, shows us that his will for us is good and is that his will is not for, is not for bad, you know. That, yeah. That, yeah. Yeah, thank you. So it definitely tells those scriptures you have quoted, right? They are definitely telling us about the quality of the will of God for us, which is that it is good. We can be rest assured that whatever it is God has in mind for me is good, even if it's death, right? But those scriptures don't tell us what that will is, do they? So let's look at two of them actually in, in the book of First Thessalonians, right? So First Thessalonians chapter 4. Verse three and four, it says, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification. It doesn't matter what situation it is that you're going through. God wants that situation to be an opportunity for separation, to be an opportunity for you to, to dive deeper into him. What does sanctification mean? It means to be set apart for the purposes and the use of another. It means, practically, it means to be saturated with God. For many people, Circumstances and situations make them run away from God. But for the one who knows the will of God, your tears are an opportunity for you to be saturated more with God. God, I'm in a season where I don't understand. But even in this season, I don't understand. You are the only one I can run to. You know, when Jesus said to the disciples, will you also go away? <laughs> they asked him, who, who exactly are we going to go to? He said, you alone has the words of eternal life. So in every season of your life, you can be sure that this is the will of God for you, even your sanctification. I don't know if you were following the Twitter trend in 2020 when um, the Lekki Tolgate massacre happened and the outpouring of emotion on Twitter. Twitter is a place <laughs> where you read people's raw thoughts and ideas, the ideas of demons sometimes because people hardly reflect before they write in those emotional states. And some people, not a few, were recommending what they call revenge sex. That, hey, all of us are mourning and grieving. So everybody should just open up, you know. And the way to deal with this trauma is just to indulge yourself. The Bible says that this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Do you realize that whatever it is that took Daniel to Babylon was a very painful experience for him personally? He probably most likely lost both of his parents and he was castrated as a teenager, never to have sexual feelings and never to get married again. But when Daniel was writing the introduction of his book, he said, the Lord gave Babylon into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. How can you go through that kind of situation and still, <laughs> and still involve the Lord in it? And when he got to Babylon, he decided that I don't understand what what happened to us that we got to this place where the temple of God has been desecrated, where, it, where it's as though the God of heaven is no longer on the throne, but I'm going to separate myself. And the Bible says that Daniel proposed in his heart. And you see, as long as God found a man that could make that decision, even in the midst of the contradiction, it was only a matter of time before the witchcraft of Babylon fell to its face. That kind of man. We can be sure that through every season, seasons of joy, seasons of sorrow, seasons of unanswered prayers, that the will of God for us is our sanctification. God is making something beautiful, something wonderful, 
something glorious in us through that situation if we will submit it to him. The next place we see this mentioned is 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18, which is probably the more difficult one. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Why, do, why does God ask us to give thanks in everything? Have you thought about this before? Or have you even tried to practice this scripture before in the midst of your own everything? Why does God ask us to give thanks? <laughs> it's very difficult, right? Is he asking us to, um, to fake it? Is he asking us to force Thanksgiving to come out of our mouth, even though we don't feel like, it, like doing it? Is that what he's asking us to do? Because everything works for good. Stephanie says, I think so. I think God is asking us to fake it. Okay. I think Kweku's answer is, is accurate because everything, see, the fact that situations went upside down did not mean that God vacated his throne. It didn't mean, doesn't mean that God stopped working. You know that song that says, even when I don't see it, you are working. The fact that things did not go the way I thought they should go, it doesn't mean that God left his throne. And you see, it is me now who has to stay connected because God is still working. And Thanksgiving is the way I stay connected. Because it doesn't matter what happened to you, the solution is still in Christ. Ultimately, if indeed he is preeminent, if he's the one with whom we have to do, both in this world and in the world to come, if he's the one before whom we have to answer at the end of the age, right? So it means that if Christ is our only solution, it means that we have to speak to the rock rather than strike the rock. Do you remember that God asked Moses to speak to the rock the second time and he struck it? And what does striking the rock indicate? You know, you are going through a situation and you begin to murmur, murmur against the faithfulness of God, murmur against the love, the character of the love of God. You are striking the rock. And whatever it is that you do that brings out water will not be in line with the will of God for your life in that moment. The thing that is in line with the will of God is that you give thanks. And I can show you what your thanksgiving is before the throne of God. Because when you go into heaven, if you, if you take a journey to heaven in the spirit, you can easily do that by just reading Revelation chapter five. You will see that, that the worship that proceeds from the angels, from the saints, from the 24 elders, from the four beasts, the focus of that worship is not that God gave them money or God healed their diseases. He says, you were slain, you were slain. Whatever it is our problems are, they are not as serious as that problem that needed you to, be, to, to lay down your life. And your life was not too much for you to give up. And because you were slain, everything else is possible. Your blood has now been poured out. It's possible that we can overcome. It's possible that we will overcome. It's possible that we have overcome because you were slain. And as they fix their their eyes on that perspective, it becomes easy to give thanks. Hebrews 13 calls it the sacrifices of joy. In Psalm 1 to 6, you know, we read something about seasons like this. The Bible says that those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. So your thanksgiving, especially in a difficult moment, becomes the seed 
of your of your breakthrough as it were as long as that that thanksgiving is is focused on the person the work of christ what he has accomplished in history and in your life the bible says he who continually goes forth weeping bearing seed for sowing he shall doubtless <laughs> the, the writer is, is is too certain of it that he would doubtless come again with rejoicing bringing his sheaves with him that's how galatians concluded it says god cannot be mocked it's not possible that a man can consistently sow in the spirit and then his life ends up in a way that does not glorify god it's not possible and david said i've been young and now i'm old i've never seen the righteous forsaken many things are his afflictions but the lord has somehow delivered him out of all of them but i've never seen the righteous forsaken because god cannot be mocked and so the will of God for us is that we give thanks. It's in our thanksgiving that we unlock everything else. I mean, going back to Colossians chapter one, I know that <laughs> this one is a very difficult one, of course, but it's, it's the will of God. This is the generics. Before you begin to ask what is the specific, make sure that you have gotten the generics right. Because I can assure you 90% of our needs will be met on the ground of the generics. The thing that you think is very specific, you know, oh, should I take this job or that job? Should I marry this person or that person? God is too faithful to allow you miss it in those, in those key things, to miss it too much, that you cannot recover in those key things. But in discerning the will of God, you must get the generics, the generals first, which is your sanctification and which is your thanksgiving. And it's after you've gotten the generics right that you can now go into the specifics, which is what is the will of God for my life? And you see, it's called the will of God because it is domiciled in the heart of God, right? It means that if you are going to, if you are going to um, extract it from the heart of God, you have to journey into the heart of God. You know, prayer is a journey into the heart of God. It's a journey. It's not, it's not a where you don't even know what you're saying. You're not paying attention to what you're saying. You're just logging hours. No, <laughs> it's a journey. There's a time when you get there. And sometimes I can assure you, it takes long prayer sometimes to strike that chord in the spirit. And then the spirit changes your perspective and something breaks out in heaven. You know that you have touched the heart of God. The will of God is, is domiciled in the heart of God. And if you're going to know the specifics, should I talk to Mr. A or Mr. B? The only way is that you join into the heart of God. And that's why you need Thanksgiving because you're going to go in there with Thanksgiving. There are gates that only open to Thanksgiving on your way into the heart of God. Because friends, God doesn't owe us anything. And even though he's humble enough to meet us on any level, even if we come to him accusing him of unfaithfulness, as long as he brings us to him anyway, he's still willing to meet us on that level. It's important for us in our dealings with him to know um, that he doesn't owe us anything. He has given us the thing that we could never have gotten ourselves. And Paul, Paul's logic is if he gave us this thing, how shall he not with Christ freely give us all things? So this delay in my life is not a testimony to the faithfulness of God, but I will need to take a journey I'll need to take a journey into the will of God to discern his heart, to know what he's saying. And after you have journeyed into the will of God, 
and you have captured that specific will for your life, you need to develop the capacity to sustain that will of God, which is why we began with this is the will of God for you, even your sanctification. You see, there's a level of saturation of God that you have to carry around you for you to, to be an executor of certain things in the will of God. If God tells you to, to go <laughs> and break up a relationship with a church or with a pastor or with a friend or with whatever, that's not the kind of thing that you can do in the flesh without creating problems for yourself and for the person or the people that you are going to have that conversation with. If you're going to, one of the things that happens to you is that you either keep postponing the decision until things get out of hand or you decide to saturate yourself with God. Because it's possible that you can go to make that decision and then they give you arguments that make you change your mind. But the person who is saturated with God remains planted on the will of God. So when we discern the specifics, we gain the capacity. We have to press into God for the capacity to maintain what we have discerned. And look at what Paul says. We're not, I think we're going to stop at verse 12 for tonight. Look at what Paul says. He says that, the reason you need to know the will of God is that you may walk worthy of the Lord. Friends, God cares about how we walk, fully pleasing him. Now, you know, the way Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount, um, not the Sermon on the Mount, it's, uh, yeah. Is it the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse, verse 48, I think. Yes, it's not the whole sermon, but just Matthew chapter 5. It says, be perfect even as your father, which is in heaven, is perfect. And the question is, how does Jesus ever in this world expect me to be perfect, even as my father is perfect? And then you realize that you are not the first person that God is talking to like this. God came to Abraham and said, walk before me and be blameless. And friends, the way to be perfect before God is not that you don't make mistakes, but is that you are always in the now will of God. Because it's when we get into the specifics that you realize that, okay, the Holy Spirit may not want me to watch African magic. And anytime I attempt to watch it, my peace leaves my soul. And I'm telling you a real life story, right? He may not want me to watch African magic. That's, that's specific. It's not a message about holiness. It doesn't make me better than the people who watch it. It's an organic dealing. If you travel into the heart of God far enough, and if God is merciful towards you, he will bring you that specific. I have something for you. I don't want you to watch Africa magic. Meanwhile, there's somebody else whose future is in the media, in the local media in Africa, and the person desperately needs to be watching Africa magic to prepare them for that future. It is specific. Now, I can, I can come to church and rationalize that there's nothing wrong with watching Africa magic. And me saying I'm not going to watch it is me acting holier than thou, so therefore I'll just watch it. In heaven's record, and the testimony of Jesus is the testimony of the church in Sardis when he said to them, I've not found your works perfect before God. Because the things that God was faithful to smuggle into your heart, you, went, you, didn't, you didn't value them enough you know, to pay attention to them. And that's why it seems that a lot of times the hope that is in our hearts never materializes because our devotion sometimes is dissipated. But he says, the reason that I want you to descend the will of God is so that you may walk worthy of him. And as you walk worthy of him, your fruitfulness is inevitable. 
your fruitfulness is inevitable and you increase in the knowledge of God. Friends, it's possible to increase in the knowledge of God. The word here is epignosis, which is the precise knowledge of God, which is the exact knowledge of God. <laughs> the only way to know God is not through a textbook, but it's through a walk with God. You are going to make mistakes and then you are going to learn that God is not like this, right? You are going to get into fellowship with people as you are led by the Spirit. Many things will happen and you know God is not like this. God is like that. You can increase in the knowledge of God. Many things can begin to flow out of your spirit because you learned the will of God for your life. And then he says, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. We're not going to press this part because in different studies in the past, we have pressed this part sufficiently, I think. Um, that at the end of the day, the will of God is what grounds us and keeps us patient with all long-suffering. Everything that God has for us is not going to materialize immediately. We can, we can do 21 days proclamation where we name and claim and declare and then it will happen for everybody else and may not happen for us. It, there, there is long suffering in, in, in the path of life, but only through the knowledge of the will of God can we go through it with joy. So it's not as though he's not suffering. It's not, it's not as though it doesn't require patience from us, but the difference is that we, we do it with joy. So it is that will of God that you capture in your heart that strengthens you. Is there something about your territory that you know, a secret that God has smuggled into your heart that has become the foundation of your conviction? Because if you don't have such a conviction, I can assure you Satan can come and talk you out of, out of whatever it is that God has asked you to do, out of the place that God has planted you. He can orchestrate a series of coincidences that will shift your conviction. But there has to be something that God has smuggled into your heart. Something that God has smuggled into your heart that has become your focus. That has become the source of your strength. As we go into a new year, if you're going to be strengthened, allow yourself to pick the will of God. Just bring out time in the midst of the festivities and busyness. Bring out time to travel into the heart of God. Ensure that you get the generics right. And then journey, journey with him and trust him as something will open up. And verse 12 ends by saying, giving thanks to the father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. What is the inheritance of the saints in the light? We're going to find out next week. But this is where we'll bring it to an end. It's very difficult for us to... Um, merge the, the focus of verse 13 to the end of this chapter with what we have just talked about. So it makes sense for us to um, stop our study here tonight.